I have a talk, said Ernest. The man with the mop was now also standing between Redrick and the door. An enormous black man, like Goodlin, only twice as broad. Let's go, said Redrick, grabbing his briefcase. He was now wide awake. He walked behind the bar and squeezed past the black man with the beer. The guy must have crushed his finger. He was licking his nail, scowling at Redrick from beneath his brows. Another powerfully built black man with a broken nose and cauliflower ears. Ernest went into the back room, and Redrick followed because by now all three goons were standing by the entrance, and the man with the mop blocked the way to the storeroom. In the back room, Ernest stepped aside and, hunching over, sat on a chair next to the wall while Captain Quarterblad, mournful and yellow, got up from behind the desk. A huge U.N. soldier with his helmet pulled over his eyes materialized from the left and quickly patted Redrick down, going over his pockets with enormous hands. He paused at the right side pocket, removed the brass knuckles, and softly nudged Redrick toward the captain. Redrick approached the desk and placed his briefcase in front of Captain Quarterblad. Good job, bastard, he told Ernest. Ernest gave him a dejected look and shrugged one shoulder. Everything was clear. The two black men were already standing, smirking in the door, and there were no other exits, and the window was shut and grated with thick iron bars. Captain Quarterblad, grimacing in disgust, was digging with both hands through the briefcase, laying the contents out on the table. Two extra small empties, sixteen sparks of various sizes in a plastic bag, two beautifully preserved sponges, and a single jar of carbonated clay. Is there anything in your pockets? Captain Quarterblad asked softly. Take it all out. Asshole, said Redrick. Idiots. He stuck his hand in his pocket and hurled a bunch of cash down on the table. The bills flew in all directions. Wow, said Captain Quarterblad. Anything else? You stinking toads! shrieked Redrick, grabbed the second bundle from his pocket and hurled it forcefully at his feet. Take it! Choke on it! Very interesting, Captain Quarterblad said calmly. And now, pick it up. Screw you, said Redrick, putting his hands behind his back. Your lackeys will pick it up. You'll pick it up yourself. Pick up the money, stalker, said Captain Quarterblad without raising his voice digging his fists into the table and leaning forward with his whole body. For a few seconds, they silently looked at each other in the eye, and Redrick, muttering curses, squatted down on the floor and started reluctantly collecting the money. The guys behind his back snickered, and the U.N. soldier snorted spitefully. Don't snort, said Redrick. What are you, a horse? He was already crawling on his knees, collecting bills one by one, getting closer and closer to the dark copper ring lying peacefully in a dirt-filled groove on the floor. He turned to position himself, continuing to shout dirty words, all the ones that he knew and a few he made up along the way, and when the moment came, he shut up, strained, grabbed the ring, and pulled on it with all his might. The thrown-open trapdoor hadn't even clattered onto the floor when he was diving, head-first, arms outstretched, into the cool, dank darkness of the wine cellar. 
He landed on his hands, rolled over, jumped up and crouching, relying only on memory and on luck, blindly threw himself into a narrow passage between the row of boxes. He bumped into the boxes as he ran, listening to them clang and clatter into the passage behind him, and stumbling, ran up the invisible steps, rammed his whole body into a rusty tin-plated door and burst into Ernest's garage. He was shaking and breathing heavily. Red spots swam in front of his eyes, and his heart thumped loudly and painfully in his throat. But he didn't even stop for a second. He immediately threw himself into a corner and, skinning his hands, started to tear down the mountain of junk that hid the missing planks in the garage wall. Then he lay on his stomach and crawled through the hole, listening to something tear in his jacket. Out on the yard, as narrow as a well, he crouched by the garbage bins, pulled off his jacket, and tore off his tie. He quickly looked himself over, dusted off his pants, stood up, and running across the yard, ducked into a low, foul-smelling tunnel that led to an identical, adjacent yard. As he ran, he pricked up his ears, but the wail of police sirens wasn't audible yet. Then he ran, even faster, scattering recoiling children, diving under hanging laundry and crawling through holes and rotten fences, trying to quickly flee this district while Captain Quarterblad still hadn't cordoned it off. He knew these places like the back of his hand. In these yards, these cellars, and these abandoned laundries, he had played as a boy everywhere around here. He had acquaintances and even friends. And under different circumstances, it would be child's play to hide here and sit it out, even for a whole week. But that wasn't why he had made a daring escape from custody, right under Captain Quarterblad's nose, instantly adding a year to his sentence. He had a stroke of luck. Yet another procession of some league swarmed down 7th Street, hollering and raising dust. Two hundred long-haired idiot men and short-haired idiot women, waving stupid signs as filthy and tattered as himself, and even worse, as if they'd all been crawling through holes and fences, spilling garbage cans on themselves, and on top of that had recently spent a wild night in a coal bin. He jumped out of the doorway, burst into the crowd, and zigzagging, shoving, stepping on toes, getting the occasional fist in the face and returning the favor, forced his way through to the other side and ducked into another doorway. Right at the moment when the familiar repulsive wail of the police siren sounded ahead, and the procession stopped, folding like an accordion. But he was now in a different district, and Captain Quarterblad had no way of knowing which one. He approached his garage from the direction of the electronics warehouse and had to wait for a while as the workers loaded their cart with gigantic cardboard boxes with television sets. He made himself comfortable in the stunted lilac bushes in front of a windowless wall of a neighboring house, caught his breath, and smoked a cigarette. He smoked greedily, crouching down, leaning his back against the rough plaster of the wall, occasionally touching his cheek to still the nervous tick, and thought and thought. And thought. Then, when the cart with the workers rolled honking into the yard, he laughed and softly said in its direction, Thanks, boys. You slowed an idiot down. Gave him time to think. From that moment on, he was quick, without being rash, his motions deft and deliberate, as if he were working in the zone. He crept into his garage through a secret passage, silently removed the old seat cushion, stuck a hand into the basket, carefully took the package out of the bag and placed it under his shirt. He grabbed an old threadbare leather jacket from the hook, found a grease-stained cap in the corner, and using both hands pulled it low over his forehead. Narrow strips of sunlight full of dancing dust particles entered the gloom of the garage through the cracks in the door. The kids in the yard shrieked in excitement and glee, 
And just as he was getting ready to leave, he suddenly recognized his daughter's voice. Then he pressed his eye to the widest crack and watched for a bit, as the monkey, waving two balloons, ran around the new swings while three old ladies with knitting in their laps sat on a bench nearby and stared at her, grimly pursing their lips, exchanging their lousy opinions, the old hags. But the kids, they were just fine, playing with her like everything's all right. It wasn't for nothing he bribed them as best he could the wooden slide he made them, and the dollhouse, and the swing, and that bench on which the old hags were assembled. He made that, too. All right, he said, only moving his lips as he tore himself away from the crack, took one last look at the garage, and ran into the passage. In the southwestern outskirts, by the abandoned gas station at the end of Minor Street, there was a telephone booth. Lord knows who used it now. The surrounding houses were all boarded up, and farther south stretched the endless vacant lot of the old town dump. Redrick sat right on the ground in the shadow of the booth and stuck his hand into the space beneath it. He groped around and felt the dusty wax paper and the handle of the gun that was wrapped in the paper. The zinc-coated cartridge box was also in its place, as was the bag of bracelets and the old wallet with fake documents. The cash was intact. Then he took off his leather jacket and cap and felt under his shirt. He sat there for an entire minute, weighing in his hand the porcelain container with inevitable and inexorable death within. He felt his cheek twitch again. Shuhart, he muttered, not hearing his voice. What are you doing, bastard? You lowlife with this thing, they'll squash us all. He pressed his fingers to his twitching cheek, but it didn't help. Those jerks, he said about the workers loading televisions into the cart, had to get in my way. I'd have tossed the wretched stuff back in the zone. No one would have been the wiser. He looked around in despair. The hot air was quivering over the cracked pavement. The boarded-up windows stared sullenly. Dust clouds were wandering over the plain. He was all alone. Fine, he said with decision. All for one, only the Lord for all. In our age, it'll do. Hurrying so he wouldn't change his mind again, he stuffed the container in the cap and wrapped the cap in his leather jacket. He stood on his knees and, pushing with all his strength, slightly tilted the booth. The thick package fit in the bottom of the pit, still leaving a lot of free space. He carefully put the booth down, rocked it with both hands, and stood up, dusting off his palms. That's it, he said. It's done. He climbed into the oppressively hot booth, inserted a coin, and dialed a number. Gouda, he said. Don't worry, please, I got caught again. He could hear her shuddering sigh and hurriedly said, This is all peanuts, six to eight months, with visits, we'll manage. And you won't be left without money. They'll send you money. She was still silent. Tomorrow morning they'll summon you to headquarters. We'll meet there. Bring the monkey. Will there be a search? She said tonelessly. 
Let them search if they like. The place is clean. All right, stay strong. Hang in there. Don't worry. Married a stalker now. Don't complain. Well, till tomorrow. Keep in mind, I never called you. Kisses. He abruptly hung up and stood still for a few seconds, squeezing his eyes tightly shut and clenching his teeth so hard his ears rang. Then he again inserted a coin and dialed another number. Hello, said Raspy. This is Shuhart speaking, said Redrick. Listen carefully and don't interrupt. Shuhart, said Raspy with very genuine surprise. Which Shuhart? Don't interrupt, I said. I got caught, escaped, and now I'm going to give myself up. They'll give me two and a half or three years. My wife will be left penniless. You will provide for her. Make sure she has everything she needs. You understand? Do you understand? I'm asking. Go on, said Raspy. Near the place where we first met, there's a telephone booth. There's only one here. You'll find it. The porcelain container is lying underneath. If you want it, take it. If you don't, don't take it. But make sure my wife has everything she needs. You and I still have a lot of work to do. And if I come back and find that you've double-crossed me, I don't suggest you double-cross me. Got it? I got it all, said Raspy. Thank you. After hesitating a little, he asked, Maybe a lawyer? No, said Redrick. All the money, to the last penny, to my wife. Bye. He hung up the phone, looked around, stuffed his hands deep into his pockets, and leisurely walked up Miner Street between the abandoned, boarded-up buildings. Chapter 3 Richard H. Noonan, 51 years old, a representative of electronic equipment suppliers to the Harmont branch of the IIEC. Richard H. Noonan was sitting behind his office desk and doodling in an enormous notebook. At the same time, he was smiling sympathetically, nodding his bald head and not listening to his visitor. He was simply waiting for a phone call while his visitor, Dr. Pillman, was lazily reprimanding him, or imagining that he was reprimanding him, or trying to convince himself that he was reprimanding him. We'll keep that all in mind, Valentine, Noonan said, finally finishing his tenth doodle for an even count and slamming his notebook shut. You're right. This is a disgrace. Valentine stretched out a slender hand and carefully flicked the ashes onto the ashtray. And what exactly will you be keeping in mind, he inquired politely. Oh, everything you said, replied Noonan cheerfully, leaning back in his armchair. Every last word. And what did I say? That's irrelevant, said Noonan. Whatever you said, we'll keep it all in mind. Valentine, Dr. Valentine Pillman, Nobel laureate, etc., etc., was sitting in front of him in a deep armchair. Small, neat, and elegant, his suede jacket spotless, and his pulled-up trousers ironed to perfection. He was wearing a blindingly white shirt, 
a severe solid-colored tie and gleaming shoes. There was a sardonic smile on his pale, thin lips. Enormous sunglasses hid his eyes, and his black hair bristled in a crew-cut over a broad, low forehead. "'In my opinion, they pay your incredible salary for nothing,' he said. "'And on top of that, Dick, I think you're also a saboteur.' "'Shh,' said Noonan in a whisper. "'For God's sake, not so loud.' As a matter of fact, continued Valentine, I've been watching you for some time. As far as I can tell, you do no work at all. Wait a minute, interrupted Noonan, wagging a fat pink finger at him in protest. What do you mean, no work? Has a single claim been without consequences? No idea, said Valentine, flicking his ashes again. We get good equipment, and we get bad equipment. We get the good stuff more often, but... What you have to do with it, I don't have a clue. And if it wasn't for me, objected Noonan, the good stuff would be rarer. Besides, you scientists keep damaging good equipment. You file claims, and who covers for you then? Take, for example, what you've done with the Bloodhound, an outstanding machine, made a brilliant showing during the geological surveys, reliable, autonomous, and you were running it at ridiculous settings, rode the mechanism too hard like a racehorse. Didn't give it enough water and feed it oats, commented Valentine. You're a stable master, Dick, not a manufacturer. A stable master, Noonan replied thoughtfully. That's more like it. Now, a few years ago, we had a Dr. Panoff working here. You probably knew him. He later perished. Anyway, he figured that my true calling is breeding crocodiles. I've read his papers, said Valentine, a very serious-minded and thoughtful man. If I were you, I'd consider his words carefully. All right, I'll mull them over sometime. Why don't you tell me instead what happened at yesterday's experimental SK-3 launch? SK-3, repeated Valentine, furrowing his pale forehead. Oh, the minstrel. Nothing in particular. It followed the route well and brought back a few bracelets and a strange disc. He paused. And a buckle from a pair of Lux brand suspenders. What kind of disc? An alloy of vanadium. Hard to say more right now. No unusual attributes. Then why did the SK grab it? Ask the company. That's more in your line. Noonan pensively tapped his notebook with his pencil. After all, it was an experimental launch, he mused. Or maybe the disc lost charge. You know what I'd advise you to do? Throw it back into the zone, and after a day or two, send the bloodhound after it. I remember the year before last... The phone rang, and Noonan immediately, forgetting Valentine, grabbed the receiver. Mr. Noonan, asked the secretary, General Lemkin calling for you again. Put him through. Valentine stood up, placed his extinguished cigarette in the ashtray, twirled two fingers near his temple as a sign of farewell, and went out. Small, straight-backed, well-built. Mr. Noonan, said the familiar drawl. Speaking, it's hard to find you at work, Mr. Noonan. A new shipment has arrived. Yes, I already know that, Mr. Noonan. I'm in town for a short time. There are a couple of issues that need to be discussed in person. I'm referring to the latest contracts for Mitsubishi Denzai, the legal aspects. I'm at your service. Then, if you don't mind, we'll meet in half an hour in our department. Is that convenient for you? That's fine. 
See you in half an hour. Richard Noonan put down the receiver, got up, and rubbing his plump hands, walked around his office. He even started singing a pop song, but immediately hit a sour note and laughed genially at himself. Then he took his hat, threw his raincoat over his arm, and went into the waiting room. My dear, he said to the secretary, I'll have to go make my rounds. You're now in charge of the troops. Hold fort, as they say, and I'll bring you back some chocolates. The secretary perked up. Noonan blew her an air kiss and walked briskly along the Institute's corridors. A few times people tried to waylay him. He dodged them, put them off with jokes, urged them to hold the fort without him, to take it easy, not to overwork themselves. Finally, having successfully avoided everyone, he strode out of the building, waving his unopened pass in the guard's face with his usual motion. Heavy clouds were hanging over the city. It was muggy and the first hesitant raindrops were spreading into little black stars on the pavement. Throwing his raincoat over his head and shoulders, Noonan trotted along the long row of cars to his Peugeot, dived inside, and tearing his raincoat off his head, threw it into the back seat. He took a round black spacel out of a side pocket of his jacket, inserted it into a jack on the dashboard, and pushed it in with his thumb until it clicked. Finally, wriggling his rear, he made himself comfortable behind the wheel and pressed on the gas. The Peugeot silently rolled into the middle of the street and raced toward the exit from the restricted area. The rain gushed down all at once, as if a gigantic bucket of water had been tipped over in the sky. The road became slippery and the car started skidding on turns. Noonan turned on his windshield wipers and slowed down. So they've received the report, he thought. Now they'll praise me. Well, I'm all for that. I like being praised, especially by General Lemkin in spite of himself. It's funny. I wonder why we like being praised. There's no money in it. Fame? How famous could we get? He became famous. Now he's known to three. Maybe four, if you count Bayless. Aren't humans absurd? I suppose we like praise for its own sake, the way children like ice cream. It's an inferiority complex, that's what it is. Praise assuages our insecurities, and ridiculously so. How could I rise in my own opinion? Don't I know myself, fat old Richard H. Noonan? By the way, what does that H stand for? What a thing, and there's no one to ask. Not like I can ask General Lemkin. Oh, I got it. Herbert. Richard Herbert Noonan. Boy, is it pouring. He turned on to Central Avenue, and the thought popped into his head. How our little town has grown in recent years. Skyscrapers all around. There's another one under construction, and what will we have here? Oh, yes, the Luna Complex, featuring the world's best jazz and a variety show, and the brothel that'll hold a thousand... All for our valiant troops and brave tourists, especially the wealthy ones, and for our noble knights of science. Meanwhile, the suburbs are emptying out, and there's no longer anywhere for the returning dead to go. The risen dead have no place to return, he enunciated, and that is why they're sorrowful and stern. Yes, I'd like to know how all this will end. By the way, about ten years ago, I knew with absolute certainty what would happen. Impenetrable police lines, 
belt of empty land, fifty miles wide. Scientists and soldiers, no one else. A hideous sore on the face of the planet, permanently sealed off. And the funny thing is, it seemed like everybody thought this, not just me. The speeches that were made, the bills that were proposed, and now you can't even remember how all this unanimous steely resolve suddenly evaporated into thin air. On the one hand, we are forced to admit. On the other hand, we can't dispute. And it all seems to have started when the stalkers brought the first spacels out of the zone. The batteries. Yes, I think that's really how it started. Especially when it was discovered that spacels multiply. Turned out that the sore wasn't such a sore. Maybe it wasn't a sore at all, but instead a treasure trove. And now, no one has a clue what it is. A sore, a treasure trove, an evil temptation, Pandora's box, a monster, a demon. We're using it bit by bit. We've struggled for twenty years, wasted billions, but we still haven't stamped out the organized theft. Everyone makes a buck on the side while the learned men pompously hold forth. On the one hand, we are forced to admit. On the other hand, we can't dispute, because objects so-and-so, when irritated with X-rays at an 18-degree angle, emits quasi-heated electrons at a 22-degree angle. Uh, to hell with it. One way or another, I won't live till the end. The car was rolling past the Vulture Burbridge's mansion. Because of the torrential rain, the whole house was lit up. In the second-story windows in gorgeous Dina's rooms, you could see the dancing pairs moving to the music. Either they've been up since dawn or they're still going from the last night, he thought. That's the fashion in town nowadays. Parties round the clock. A vigorous generation we've raised, hard-working and untiring in their pursuits. Noonan stopped the car in front of an unprepossessing building with a modest sign, Law Firm of Corish, Corish, and Samak. He took the spacel out and put it in his pocket, pulled his raincoat over his head again, grabbed his hat, and made a headlong rush inside. Past the porter, absorbed in his newspaper, and up the stairs, covered with threadbare carpet. Then he ran heels tapping on the floor along a dark second-story hallway permeated with a distinctive odor he had long ago stopped trying to identify. He opened the door at the end of the hallway and entered the waiting room. Behind the secretary's desk sat an unfamiliar, very tan young man. He wasn't wearing his jacket, and his shirt sleeves were rolled up. He was rummaging in the guts of some complicated electronic device that had replaced the typewriter on top of the desk. Richard Noonan hung his raincoat and hat on a hook, smoothed down the remnants of his hair with both hands, and looked inquiringly at the young man. He nodded. Noonan opened the door to the office. General Lemkin rose heavily from the large leather armchair by the curtained window to greet him. His square-jawed, soldierly face was gathered into creases, representing either a welcoming smile or displeasure with the weather, or possibly a barely suppressed desire to sneeze. Oh, there you are, he drawled. Come in, take a seat. Noonan looked around for a place to sit and couldn't find anything except a hard, straight-backed chair tucked behind the desk. He sat on the desk's edge, his cheerful mood was dissipating for some reason. 
He himself didn't yet understand why. Suddenly he realized that there would be no praise today. Quite the contrary, the day of wrath, he thought philosophically, and prepared for the worst. Feel free to smoke, offered General Lemkin, lowering himself back into the armchair. No, thanks. I don't smoke. General Lemkin nodded his head with a look that suggested his worst suspicions had been confirmed, pressed his fingertips together in front of his face, and spent some time intently examining the resulting shape. I suppose legal affairs of the Mitsubishi Denshi Company will not be under discussion today, he said finally. This was a joke. Richard Noonan smiled readily and answered, As you wish. Sitting on the desk was incredibly uncomfortable. His feet didn't reach the floor, and the edge bit into his ass. "'I regret to inform you, Richard,' said General Lemkin, "'that your report created an extremely favorable impression higher up.' "'Hmm,' said Noonan. "'Here it comes,' he thought. "'They were even planning to present you with a medal,' continued General Lemkin. "'But I suggested they wait. And I was right. He finally tore himself away from contemplating the configuration of his fingers and glowered at Noonan from beneath his brows. You will ask why I displayed such seemingly excessive caution. You probably had your reasons, said Noonan in a dull voice. Yes, I did. What do we learn from your report, Richard? The Metpole gang has been liquidated through your efforts. The entire Green Flower Gang has been caught red-handed. Brilliant work, also yours. The VAR, Quasimodo, and Traveling Musicians Gangs and the rest, I don't remember their names, have closed up shop, realizing that sooner or later they'd get nabbed. All this really did happen. Everything has been verified by other sources. The battlefield is empty. Your victory, Richard. The enemy has retreated in disarray, having sustained heavy losses. Have I given a correct account of the situation? At any rate, Noonan said carefully, in the last three months the flow of materials from the zone through Harmont has stopped, at least according to my sources, he added. The enemy has retreated, right? Well, if you insist on that particular expression, yes. No said General Lemkin. The thing is, this enemy never retreats. I know this for a fact. By hastily submitting a victorious report, Richard, you have demonstrated immaturity. That is precisely why I suggested we abstain from immediately presenting you with an award. The hell with you and your awards, thought Noonan, swinging his leg and sullenly staring at his shiny shoe. Your medal isn't worth the medal it's made of, and please skip the preaching and condescension. I know perfectly well without you who I'm dealing with, and I don't need a damn sermon about the enemy. Just tell me straight out when, where, and how I've messed up. What else these bastards managed to pull, and when and where they found a crack, and stop beating around the bush. I'm not some green kid. I'm over half a century old, and I'm not sitting here because of your damn medals. What have you heard about the Golden Sphere? asked General Lemkin abruptly. My lord, thought Noonan in annoyance, what does the golden sphere have to do with it? To hell with you and your manner of talking. The golden sphere is a legend, he reported in a flat tone. 
a mythical object in the zone, which appears in the form of a certain golden sphere and which is rumored to grant human wishes. Any wishes? According to the canonical text of the legend, any wishes. However, there exist variants. All right, said General Lemkin. And what have you heard about the death lamp? Eight years ago, Noonan droned dully. A stalker by the name of Stephen Norman, nicknamed Four Eyes, brought out of the zone a device that, as far as anyone could tell, consisted of a ray-ebitting system fatal to Earth organisms. The aforementioned Four Eyes was attempting to sell this instrument to the Institute. They couldn't agree on a price. Four Eyes left for the zone and never came back. The current whereabouts of the instrument are unknown. The guys at the Institute are still tearing their hair out about it. Hugh, from the Metropole, who is well known to you, had offered to buy it for any sum that could fit on a check. Is that all? asked General Lemkin. That's all, answered Noonan. He looked around the room with an exaggerated motion. The room was boring. There was nothing to look at. Okay, said Lemkin. And what have you heard about lobster eyes? About what eyes? Lobster eyes, lobster, you know. General Lemkin made a snipping motion with his fingers, with claws. First time I've heard of them, said Noonan, frowning. Well, what do you know about rattling napkins? Noonan climbed off the desk and faced Lemkin, his hands stuffed into his pockets. I don't know anything, he said. How about you? Unfortunately, I also don't know anything, neither about lobster eyes nor about rattling napkins. And yet they exist. In my zone, asked Noonan. Sit down, sit down, said General Lemkin, waving his hand. Our conversation has just started. Sit down. Noonan walked around the desk and sat down on the hard, straight-backed chair. What's he getting at, he thought feverishly. What the hell is going on? They probably found some things in the other zones, and he's playing.